It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hi, and welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to have a good discussion today. We're going to call up a phone a friend, a Guy Benson, who you've probably seen, heard, and probably read some stuff along the way. One of the smartest guys in politics. I love the clarity in which he looks at things. I look forward uh, to dialing him up, and uh, we'll all get to know him a little bit better. We're going to highlight the stupid because, you know, Somebody's always doing something stupid somewhere. And then, of course, uh, we're going to start and kick things off by talking about things in the news and a little riff on the news, if we could. Um, I'm still fascinated by what's going on or what went on in in Virginia, in New Jersey, in other places around the country. Democrats act as if they have some sort of mandate, but they they don't. They They won by razor thin margins. And, you know, that you would think that the Bernie Sanders of the world were the socialists, the, the Democrats were, you know, that are just so far to the left that they, they were the ones that were swept into power, that AOC and alike, that they were the ones that, that propelled the Democrats to this massive victory and that the country had spoken. But it wasn't anything near that. I find it interesting, actually, with Bernie Sanders. Bernie's was for a long time. Uh, the senator was not even a declared Democrat. He was uh, an independent because, you know, Democrats were just far, far uh, too centrist for, for his like. And yet he runs for president. He actually does pretty well on the left side of the aisle. But um, you know what? Now he's in charge of the budget committee for the Democrat, a non-registered member of the Democratic Party for so long. And so you go back and you look at the news here and look at the analysis of what went on in in uh, in Virginia. And I think there's a couple lessons to learn. One is you got to have a good candidate. And obviously, Mr. Youngkin was a very good candidate. He was articulate. He was compassionate. He loved Virginia. And he worked really, really hard. Uh, he's done good things in his life. I read that 40% of his income uh, over the last, I don't know what period of time, but 40% he had... He had donated to charity along the way. He's obviously a good guy and got a beautiful family. That helps, okay? Uh, but as important as anything were, was his ability to articulate and convince the voters of Virginia that his policies were better, smarter for Virginia because that's ultimately what people want. You know, the sleeper issue there, there was a lot of discussion about uh, critical race theory. There was a lot about school choice, about the mask mandate, about the vaccine mandate, about uh, the economy and jobs and infrastructure, all of that. The sleeper issue that I see out there that I think played a major role that the Democrats just can't get away from is the is what was the perception of the United States military. If you look at Virginia, they have probably hundreds of thousands of people with direct ties to the United States military. You you cannot convince me that these people went into the booth after a few months after what went on and didn't go on in Afghanistan. The way Joe Biden and Kamala Harris absolutely bungled the withdrawal it was such a national embarrassment, such a personal embarrassment, such an affront to those that had served and are serving in our United States military. 
I think with those hundreds of thousands of people there in Virginia, there's no way they're walking into the political booth and checking a box that says, yeah, we need more Democrats. I just think when you blow and and leave behind so many Americans in Afghanistan and the way we left Afghanistan, I think there's an awful lot of people that just say, you know what, I'm not voting for a Democrat again. I'm just not going to do that. And I think that was a sleeper issue. Now, so they'll go back and they'll continue to study this, but I haven't, you know, to date, I hadn't really heard anybody talking about the, the military issue because by and large, a governor, they run the National Guard. They're, they're the, 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 the commander in chief of the National Guard, but it's not, a, but it's still, it's Democrats. And when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Barack Obama and all these people came into Virginia, Stacey Abrams, trying to say, oh, Virginia, this is what's best for you. I don't know that Virginians were having any of it. I think it goes to show yet again, I don't know that endorsements much matter. Um, I, I think people understand it's one candidate or another candidate, and they were tired of Tyree McAuliffe. They didn't want to retread. But most importantly, they saw Mr. Youngkin as somebody who represented the issues, the policies that they want. And that's a problem for Democrats across the country going into the next election in 2022. All right. Now, somebody with elections a little bit differently. My guess is you haven't heard or seen this story. And I I don't want to belabor it, but I I saw it actually. And I wanted to talk about it. It was the re-election of President Daniel Ortega as the president of Nicaragua. Now, <laughs> you go back and look at uh, what you know about Nicaragua and its history, and according to several sources here, uh, especially the Organization of American States, the OAS, the Sandinista dictator, Daniel Ortega, was de- had declared victory uh, just uh, a little while ago, but it was one of the most ugly, disgusting races that there could possibly have been. It was marred by an arrest of all other viable candidates, a ban on reputable election observers, and there was widespread reports of violence. This according to Breitbart. Um, There were seven candidates that were running against Daniel Ortega, seven of which were arrested for treason, didn't even get there on the ballot. Uh, And... uh, I mean, it, they they stopped counting the votes with only 75% of the vote in because Daniel Ortega declared victory and declared that, well, nobody else was going to win. Absolutely unbelievable that they could... He Daniel Ortega handpicked his competitors and then had them arrested for treason, according to what I've been reading here. Ay, ay, ay. I, it, it was, it, it is one of the most dangerous places. It is, it is not a place that you want to be. And talk about a dictatorship that is brutal, just ruthless, and an oppression of people. Look no, far, no farther than Nicaragua. And then the last thing I wanted to mention in this about the news is the total opposite end of the spectrum. Okay. Totally opposite end of Daniel uh, Ortega. And that is Dr. Johnny Kim. Uh, I saw this online. Uh, Dr. Johnny Kim uh, is a NASA astronaut. Uh, he was uh, he's uh, he was part of the class of 2017. And so, just when you think, hey, you know, maybe I'm doing pretty well, or you're thinking, I don't know. I, I mean, there's there's somebody out there to be proud of that's really accomplishing things. 
uh, you look no further than Johnny Kim because uh, not only is he an astronaut, in April 2021, he was selected to serve as the International Space Station's increment lead for Expedition 65. Um, but Mr. Kim, Dr. Kim, is also a lieutenant in the United States Navy where he was a SEAL. And he completed more than 100 combat operations. He's the recipient of the Silver Star and the Bronze Star with a combat experience. Uh, he was commissioned as a naval officer through an enlisted-to-officer program. And he earned his degree in mathematics at the University of San, Di San Diego. And then he went on because, you know, he didn't have enough else to do other than being a SEAL and then going on to be an astronaut. But he also became a medical doctor got his doctorate of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Talk about somebody who's, who's inspirational, who is accomplishing a lot. Uh, proud American, Dr. Johnny Kim, there now as a NASA, NASA astronaut. I, I can't even imagine a kid, somebody growing up saying, you know, I think what I want to do is I want to be a Navy SEAL, and then I want to be a doctor, and no, oh, by the way, then I'm going to be an astronaut, because this guy did it. That's a whole lot, whole lot different than Daniel Ortega and... Uh, Wow, uh, somebody to emulate and somebody to look at because that guy has accomplished a lot. So let's look at the opposite of that. The op opposite of uh, uh, Dr. Johnny Kim is probably somebody who's bringing on the stupid. Let's bring on the stupid because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. Now, the stupid this week is uh, pretty short, sweet, and simple. I saw it at foxnews.com, and it was just the headline. And I, I, you don't even have to get their article. You can just figure out that there's something stupid going on here, okay? And we're talking about the Texas football team. I, I got great respect for Texas, great respect for their football team. But here's the headline. You tell me if you need to read anything else to figure out if there's something stupid going on here. Monkey, belonging to Texas special teams coach, stripper girlfriend, bites child on Halloween. I don't think I need to read anything else. I think I know there's something stupid going on here, and that's enough for me. So, like I said, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. Monkey belonging to Texas special teams coach stripper girlfriend bites child on Halloween. There's probably nothing good going on there. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back right after this. All right, time to move on. Time to talk to some from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Somebody who's uh, a little bit more reputable than that, somebody who uh, I've gotten to know a little bit through my time at, um, at, at Fox News. I know him. I don't know him that well. I've been on his show before, the Guy Benson Show. So let's uh, let's dial up Guy Benson and uh, have a little chat with Guy about his life and growing up, and uh, he's a very conservative person. Let's have a discussion with him. Let's call up Guy Benson. Hello, this is Guy. Guy, this is Jason Chaffetz. Thanks so much for agreeing to join me on the Jason in the House podcast. I do appreciate it. What a pleasant surprise, Jason. I thought you'd never call. Well, you know, I can't say I've called a whole lot. You know, I did drop in on you and your studio. You got, of course, the Guy Benson uh, radio program. And I, I've, I've always enjoyed, uh, you know, the few times that I've been on. Um, and I love your commentary. You, you add such a clarity that I think is very difficult for a lot of people. It's one of the hardest things to do on radio and television. It's just... 
be very crystal clear in what you believe. And I don't know where you got that talent, but boy, it's uh, it, it, it's a talent. It's good. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and we're going to get you back on. I was actually talking to my producers. Got to get Jason back on the Guy Benson Show ASAP. Well, I'd love to do it. I, I really would, and uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you because of my relationship with Fox News, and I've, I've seen you from afar, but... I, I want to, you know, in our, this podcast here, we kind of dive back uh, into early childhood. We kind of start with I grew up in and then um, but, I, you know, I'd just be fascinated to know in your life's journey. Why? I mean, you're very uh, conservative in your approach. Um, and I just I'd love to hear more about that and why you believe what you believe, because I, I've just found through the, you know, life's experiences that there are reasons why that happens and that you have life experiences and things that uh, I think we'd all be fascinated to hear. So you grew up in. I grew up. So this is this is quite a story. Ready for this one? I was yes. born 1985, March 1985. I was born in Saudi Arabia in Dahran, Saudi Arabia. My dad was working over there. Uh, he worked in international finance and insurance for his whole career, almost 40 years. And my mother came over and then joined him in Saudi. And uh, so I was the firstborn, uh, the eldest son, and was born in Saudi Arabia. So that's always an interesting conversation starter right there. And when I've gone to Israel a few times, <laughs> when they're checking my passport, right? They're like, oh, here's this uh, waspy white guy with an American passport. Everything's fine. And then you see their eyes stop on, uh, you know, country of birth. And it's like, wait here. And I get more questions. Uh, so that was how things started back in the mid 80s. I was a Reagan baby. And we moved from Saudi Arabia to Chappaqua, New York, home of the Clintons, of course, uh, when I was one or so, a little over one years old. We were there for a bit for dad's work. Then we moved back overseas. On my third birthday, as a matter of fact, we landed and started uh, the next seven years in Hong Kong, which is where my wow. younger brother was born. He's four years younger than I am. And I had formative early years in Hong Kong and real, you know, uh, serious and special memories from Hong Kong, which is part of the reason I'm so passionate and angry about what's happening to Hong Kong right now. Uh, with the Chinese Communist Party doing what they're doing to Hong Kong and crushing democracy there. It, it, it is personally infuriating in addition to just the, you know, the human rights and civil liberties tragedy that's unfolding in Hong Kong. But we were there, as I mentioned, for almost seven years. We then moved 1994, 95-ish back to the U.S. At that time, all four of my grandparents were alive living in the New York City, New Jersey metro area. So we were choosing where we were going to settle, you know, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. We eventually selected, and by we, I mean my parents, you know, I, we had a, you know, half a vote. They had the real vote. And we settled in Ridgewood, New Jersey, in Bergen County, northeastern New Jersey. That is where I was in elementary school for the last couple of years, then all of middle school, all of high school. Went to public school, a really good system in Ridgewood, and uh, graduated as a Maroon 2003, and that is when I moved to Chicago and Evanston, Illinois, to attend college at Northwestern. I was there for four years, journalism major, loved Evanston, loved Chicago, started my career actually out in Chicago upon my graduation. In 07, I was done at Northwestern. I actually came back to D.C., back east to D.C. for an internship at the White House under Bush, for what four months or so then moved back to chicago kicked off my career in media there uh doing some radio stuff 
doing some writing for National Review Online. And then after three more years living in the city of Chicago, starting my career in the Chicago market, I was hired by still my current boss, Jonathan, at townhall.com to move to D.C. and uh, Northern Virginia in particular, but moved to the D.C. area, started working at townhall.com in 2010. I've been there ever since. That's where I do all of my writing to this day. And I joined Fox on air as a contributor, having been an intern back even further back in, in that history. I joined on air as a contributor 2013, and I've been at Fox News on air for eight years, which is kind of mind-blowing to me that it's been eight years, and I've lived in the D.C. area uh, for that entire stretch. I keep feeling, Jason, like I'm new to town in Washington, D.C., but I'm not. It's been 11 years. I am not new to town anymore. It still kind of feels that way, but I guess I put down some roots, and uh, that's where I am now. That's the life story. Well, you're, you're making see that see what I mean, everybody. By clarity, that's like the the clearest, most concise bio I've ever heard. You didn't get off on some tangent, and um, <laughs> I can do but, that. Though. <laughs> uh, go back to Hong Kong for a second. You know, back in my business uh, travel days, I got to go to Hong Kong. I don't know four or five times. I think I I can't remember the exact number. Wasn't but it awesome? It, it it was such an impressionable place, and it, it was a fascinating city, and um, it felt like at least the parts I was going to, a very safe city. And when the hustle and bustle of of world commerce was going on in Hong Kong. But when you're a little kid, um, what what is it that, like, is it just the sheer lights and life that's going on there? What was the impression that you left with it when you were so little that causes you to have such an uh, affinity for the place? Well, I mean, I think when some of your first real memories are in a place, you grow to care about it. And it was this amazing sort of city country at the time. It was under the control of the UK with the takeover looming from China under treaty. So that was a few years after we left. But I just had a great childhood there, really a, a fabulous education those early years at Hong Kong International School, HKIS, and made some early friendships there. And Jason, I think what might be interesting to some of your listeners is this part of it too, because my parents wanted to make sure, yes, I was being raised overseas. Yes, I was born overseas, but I was a U.S. citizen from birth, right? That was, you know, so I'm a natural born right. citizen, uh, even though I was born in Saudi. And in Hong Kong, they wanted me to understand the world and have my eyes open and be a really informed person and care about the world and be curious and enjoy travel. And that's all true. I, I still cherish international travel. It's one of my favorite things to do in life. But they also wanted me to be American. And so they, early, early days, would have me join, for example, Boy Scouts of America in Hong Kong. So I was like a Cub Scout in Hong Kong. That's where I learned the Pledge of Allegiance at age five. We were pledging allegiance to the American flag while living in Hong Kong. My dad was teaching me about, you know, the sports teams that I had to like. Uh, and then later grew to love, having then grown up in the New York area, you know, the New York Yankees, for example, the New York Giants. And one memory in particular was an annual tradition in our house, our apartment in Hong Kong, which was around Thanksgiving. And this is one of my favorite things. Honestly, I, I get like goosebumps thinking about it. Around Thanksgiving, the U.S. Navy would have some of their ships come into port in Hong Kong. And they would dock in Hong Kong, and our family uh, would sign up with the U.S. consulate in Hong Kong ahead of time, and we would offer to host usually two to four members of the U.S. military, usually the Navy, at our house, and we would cook the full American Thanksgiving meal, and we would have these American 
service members join us. And leading into Thanksgiving week, when the ships would come across the South China Sea, they would actually pass, usually, right in front of our apartment because we overlooked the water. And my dad bought the biggest American flag that he could find. And we would drape it off of our balcony and we would wave at the ships as they came in. And we had binoculars and sometimes they would be out on the deck and they'd wave back or they would flash Morse code at us. And it was just like a cool connection that I had to America and the flag and some of our values and then getting to spend the most American holiday with these American heroes, total strangers, year after year with, you know, turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and the whole nine yards. To me, that was really formative, where I could be this very profoundly and proudly American kid, even though I had spent not very long of my early, you know, not not very much of my early years actually living in the United States. And my parents made sure that that was the case. Now, that is a very cool story. In fact, The only thing I have to kind of relate to that um, is that I think the neatest thing, um, one of the certainly one of the most memorable things I got to do in Congress was I went out into the Arabian Sea there during uh, and was on the USS uh, San Jacinto during the uh, during Thanksgiving, got to serve the troops uh, Thanksgiving uh, meal. And, you know, the 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 the. The ship is pitching from left to right, and you know it's a, it's a little slippery behind the you know where you serve the turkey and the gravy and the and the potatoes and all that. And I, I was sliding all over the place. Those guys just thought that was the funniest thing in the world that I could not keep my balance trying to oh. serve up a little Thanksgiving meal. But what an I would honor. do so badly. Congress, I get seasick so easily. I'm almost seasick thinking about what you just described. <laughs> oh yeah, there, and there's no getting away from it, right? It's no, no, there's you, you no go escape. to sleep. You go to yeah. It, it's it, you know, it's it's a big ship, but it's not you know a huge cruise liner either. It's uh, it, this thing's built for war. It's not built for comfort. That's for mm-hmm. sure. So so that is fascinating. I did not know that about your about your background. So. When you eventually get back in the United States and you're toggling between, you know, Chicago and Jersey and all that, what did your parents do? What was your life experience like? Your parents were doing well. You weren't worried about a meal, right? Or Never. shelter over your head. No, we were very um, blessed. Did you right. have to, did you, did they make you work? Did you, oh, yeah. like, what were the things that were going on in your life that, Maybe everybody else wasn't doing or you thought they were, but maybe they really weren't. Well, I mean, we were by no means like super wealthy or anything like that. We had friends from school and from church who would do all this stuff that was just totally foreign to us. I mean, especially those early years, because one of the things about being an expat, which is, you know, which my parents were expats, you know, Americans stationed abroad for, you know, for a corporation, American company, a lot of the benefits and the perks that they will offer you to incentivize going overseas, often leaving your family, living far away from home, they're pretty nice, right? So when we were living abroad, so much stuff was paid for by the company. You know, the the apartment, our cars, our education, our schooling, uh, you know, homely vacations. I mean, it was a very generous package that my dad had. Then we moved back to the States, and a lot of that went away. And we were living in a a very expensive, very high tax state. And I remember especially those early years. I mean, uh, my friends who would even, you know, get pizza every Friday night. I was so jealous of that because I wish we could have pizza night. So, I mean, we were always comfortable. We never missed a meal. There was never anything like that. But I was not 
like a full-blown, you know, silver spoon type situation either. And I think that gave me some appreciation for when my dad moved up in the ranks and started to get more comfortable and being able to do things. It wasn't always that way, right? And so, and it's something that you never should and I never have taken for granted. There were some interesting things along the way. So there was a period of time where my parents were trying to be good parents and trying to be good Christians and trying to figure out what the right thing was to do. So we're big hockey fans, and the New Jersey hockey team is the New Jersey Devils. Uh, we're huge We're huge Devils fans. And there was a brief moment there where my dad was sort of, first of all, he grew up a Rangers fan, the rival, but uh, he was trying to figure out, should we really be fans of a team called the Devils, where the, where the mascot literally looks like a cartoon of Satan? Uh, and I think, you know, for a while he was sort of grappling with that. He, he decided, you know what, this, this is ultimately not that important. We're huge Devils fans. Uh, there was also a few years in middle school, late elementary middle school, where they felt like Halloween maybe wasn't something that we ought to celebrate. So they would take us on family trips instead. They would give us whatever candy we wanted, and we would do little trips, you know, to Cooperstown, to the Baseball Hall of Fame, or Gettysburg for uh, a tour of the battlefield, right. which, being a nerd forever, I thought was great. I, I've never been a huge Halloween guy, but we didn't do Halloween for a couple years, uh, just kind of for not like a full-blown religious opposition to it, but just a little bit of discomfort with it. Uh, but I also feel like I'm the oldest kid. We have it the hardest. If you're the firstborn, all of the tough decisions and idiosyncrasies of parenting and these decisions that get made, you're the guinea pig. And by the time it was down to my sister, who's the third and final in line, she could, I mean, they were so easy on her. It's not even fair. That's that's still my biggest about it, guy. Oh yeah. No, I'm still bitter about this. Like the one that the one that ticked me off the most, and I've told this story before, um, it was throughout middle school and high school, we had not a huge yard, but we had a decent sized back and front yard and the side yard and the sort of the front strip on the street. And my dad bought lawnmowers and we would cut the yard. And in the summers, you know, you do it every week, certainly every two weeks, and it would take hours. And it was sweaty and it was smelly and it was disgusting. My dad would always have me help for a significant portion of that of that task. And then I graduated from high school, as I mentioned, in 2003. My brother was then entering high school, so same age range coming in. And I go away to college and surprise, surprise, they decide to get landscapers. Like, <laughs> what the hell? Like, why doesn't he have to do all of this stuff every week? My dad's like, well... I was sort of tired of it, too, and, you know, I, I guess the point has been made. So, you know, it builds character. I guess they were only interested in building my character because they just abandoned it completely as soon as I left. And as you can tell, I'm a little grumpy about it to this day. You know, I hadn't thought about this for a while, but I kind of have the same grudge because, you know, my younger brother, I, I mowed the lawn. I was the one doing it. Alex, not so much. You know, he was like, well, your older brother will do it. You know, he's bigger. And then when I got bigger and older, guess what? We didn't have the same house and the same lawn, and he didn't have the same problem. Mm -hmm. So I, that's I, I'm going to have to go back and, and give him a hard time for that. But You should. Well, what was yeah, I think so. I think that's right. What I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here on the podcast stirring familial yeah. grievance making right, me that's feel healthy. bad about my family that's really good guy i appreciate that what uh, what uh what was the first job that you had so i would say it was probably so i did some volunteer work at the uh, red cross in town but that didn't pay so the first real consistent paying job that i did was in high school there was a little italian restaurant on the west side of the train tracks in town which is our side of the tracks 
Pasta e Polo was the name of the restaurant. And it was run actually by this Lebanese family. And uh, the patriarch, Al, was the chef, and he was very talented. I still sometimes think about his uh, linguine alla vodka, which was just amazing. And I was a host. So I was uh, the host <laughs> usually once or twice a week, Thursday nights for sure. And it was a tiny little restaurant. So if I'm remembering correctly, it was 12 tables total, maybe 14 at the most. And so my job was to seat people and then also to deal with takeout orders. And it was, you know, it was for a kid or 15 or whatever. It was kind of high pressure because people come in, they're hungry. They've made a reservation, they're hungry. And sometimes people linger, right? And you're, you're kind of wanting them to leave, but you don't want to pressure them because that's not good business, but you don't want the people to wait that long. So I had little tricks along the way. I remember one day I was very stressed out about it. And I went into Al, the chef. I was like, these people won't leave. I feel like these other people are getting really impatient. I'm getting glares. The guys come and talk to me a few times. And he gave me the greatest solution to this. He's like, oh, if this ever happens, this is what we do. If they're waiting for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, they're starting to get annoyed. You come back, you bring them bruschetta on the house. He's like, it's bread and tomatoes. That's all it is. <laughs> but people feel like they've bro they, like they've beaten the system if they get a free appetizer. So oh, you bring them some, some free bruschetta. He's like, that will buy you at least 15 more minutes. So all in, you know, you've bought yourself half an hour. They're feeling feeling happy and I ended up using that trick repeatedly and it worked well I, I you know I had heard these stories about how you got to Fox News and now I, I'm really starting to the, the clarity is coming through for me <laughs> I'm starting to understand one good dose of bruschetta and uh, yes. well done well played yeah, just knocking on Roger Ailes door sir are you interested in bruschetta <laughs> uh, that actually that that could have uh, it might have worked actually yeah. yeah but the way that I ended up getting in the door at Fox as an intern it was, uh, I was in my high school, Ridgewood High School. I was in the hallway, and there was a girl in my grade. So I didn't really know her very well. It was a class of 400 people, right? So you know some mm -hmm. people. You kind of recognize people, and you know names. And this girl, Kate, was just mentioning to her friend at a locker that her dad worked at Fox News. So my ears perked up. I was like, ooh, duly noted. And being me, I just you know went to the school directory. I don't know if they have those anymore. But if there's, like, kids listening, like, we used to have physical... Phone yeah, books I for high those. school. Yeah. yeah. So I went to the school directory. I called, cold called the guy uh, and, and just introduced myself on the phone at night. It's like, hey, I'm a classmate of Kate's. I hear that you work at Fox News and I would love to be an intern there. I'd be a great asset. I'll do anything that it takes. Sorry to bother you at home, but, you know, what can I do? How can we make this happen? And I think he was a little taken aback, but he appreciated sort of the fact that I shot my shot. What I did not know is that he was a senior vice president at Fox News. So I was able to get an, uh, an interview, shock of all shocks, and uh, did okay in the interview. And they ended up uh, assigning me to, they asked me, do I have any preference? I did have a strong preference. I wanted to work back in the day on Hannity and Combs. Remember Hannity and Combs, back yeah. in Alan Combs, too, right versus left. Yeah. That's the show they put me on, and I did some intern stuff for them in uh, summer of 2002 and 2003. Uh, and a lot of my duties actually involved helping Alan with show prep, even though I disagreed with Alan on almost everything. It was a good intellectual exercise, and he was always very, uh, very nice to me. Sean was always incredibly nice to me and to the staff. And that was a, a really cool opportunity to be an intern you know, for a primetime show, still in those pretty early days. Yeah. Of Fox News uh, and got to meet some some amazing people from Newt Gingrich to Charlie Daniels to Benjamin Netanyahu. Right. You know, as as a 17 or 18 year old. That was awesome. Yeah. Back when all the guests would actually come through 
the studios. Yep. I mean, it's really just been the last few years that so many of them are done remote, but a lot of those shows, you couldn't be on the show unless you were at the show. And sitting and being in that, that green room, it was just an amazing uh, array of people who had come totally. through. I, totally. I, mean, I actually that, that... still I'm, – I'm ticked off, Jason. I took a photo because I had this little um, – this, I mean, this is, again, we're, we're showing how old I am here for the younger audience. There was no such thing as smartphones. We didn't even have, like, you know, digital cameras, really. I had one of those little, like, cardboard <laughs> throwaway cameras where you take the click, and then you, like, you, then, like, the little round thing, you, like, spin it over to get the mm -hmm. next photo ready. I had one of those in my little briefcase for the really big guests, and I would take little photos with them in the in the green room. You had no idea if they were any good until you got the film developed, you know, weeks later. This is how things used to work. And right. I, there's a photo somewhere, I swear, of me wearing Charlie Daniels hat and I have no idea where that photo is and I regret it because I want that photo so badly I think I was I, I got to guest host for Fox and Friends and I think it was Charlie Daniels last I know it was his last Fox interview but I think it may have been one of his last interviews before he passed away and I was uh, one that got to to do the interview and oh, awesome. I, it was such an honor and he's such an icon and uh, what an experience but like I said you you have a clarity not only in the spoken word but also in the way you write but where did that come from I mean look a lot of people want to work at Fox, they want to, you know, it's got the biggest audience. Um, a lot of people want to be on air. They want to write. They want to, but very few get to do it. What do you, what do you think it is about you and what you did and how you did it that maybe differentiated you? Um, and and but what is that secret sauce that you found, and how did you find it that others just quite frankly, quite frankly, don't have? Uh, I mean, it's very kind of you to say that. I'm I'm trying to think about the best way to answer this. I think part of it might be genetic to a certain extent. So my grandfather on my dad's side was a filmmaker, incredibly smart guy. Uh, we never saw eye to eye on politics, to put it mildly, but he, he was at Yale leading up to uh, World War II. And at Yale, he got recruited by Army Intelligence. And they said to him, his name was Guy, too. There's a lot of guys in my family on that side. And they recruited him and they said, uh, we need you. Your country needs you. He joined the military on the intelligence side of things. And they said, OK, he was very good with languages, like incredibly gifted with foreign languages. And they said, guy, you're going to learn Turkish. And he did. Right? Just crazy. Right. So wow. he was a yeah. very, very smart guy. And my grandmother, his wife, she was a journalist. She was uh, raised in Australia, still have a lot of friends and family down in Australia. And back in a time where women really didn't do this sort of thing, she left home and she went to London and then New York became a journalist, just sort of this single working female journalist in a world totally dominated by men. And she made her way and that's where she met my my grandfather in New York uh, and the rest is history there. So there's some journalism uh, in in my family as well. And it was just something that I, I sort of always knew that I wanted to do. I wanted to make my living writing and speaking. And I well, think when the did moment, that happen? I mean, like when you it clicked, it clicked you in like third grade, nine years old and giving yeah. speeches. And uh, so, I no, mean, so what happened was uh, it was third or fourth grade. We moved back from Hong Kong 
And I'm still, you know, I they kept me up to date on a lot of, you know, American culture and that sort of thing. But I'm still kind of a fish out of water getting used to living in, in America. And all these kids, you know, they've got their friend group already and I'm trying to fit in. So I just like became a huge, huge Yankees fan because it was something that people were into. And I just got really passionate about it. And one day I was listening to a Yankees game uh, on the radio because we didn't have cable. My parents finally got cable when I was on it, <laughs> right? Like, we, we didn't have cable growing up. And they didn't want me, you know, watching. My dad kept saying, we don't want you to waste too much time watching sports. Of course, as soon as they got cable, uh, my dad watches so much sports. So I think I, I wonder if that was sort of him doing that for, for his own benefit or whatever. But I was listening to a Yankees game on the radio, and the play-by-play guy for the Yankees for a long time, John Sterling, and it just occurred to me, it dawned on me with this lightning bolt moment, oh my gosh, this guy gets paid probably a lot of money to talk to many, many people about the Yankees every day. This is a dream job. How on earth do I get this job? And that was my ambition, my career from that point. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I did sports broadcasting in high school. We had a TV station at the high school, and my buddy Dan and I basically... Uh, we were able to raise some money and get cameras and all this equipment, and we put our football games and ice hockey, basketball, baseball, lacrosse. We put that on the air like cable access, uh, which was cool. And, and Dan is still a pro sports broadcaster to this day. Now, he's a NHL broadcaster for the Vegas Golden Knights. So he's really, really good. I did sports broadcasting in college as well, WNUR, 89.3 FM in Chicago for uh, for Northwestern and covered uh, a number of those teams, football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, softball, lacrosse again. Um, and that was sort of my whole objective with a political interest as well. And at some point there was a fork in the road, a fork in the road, which direction do I end up heading on the broadcast side of things? And my first break came on the political side and the decision was almost kind of made for me. And that was just after I'd graduated from college in 2007. But it started with a passionate pursuit of sports broadcasting with a heavy interest in politics. And then my career took the turn, and that's the direction that it's gone in. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Guy Benson right after this. But why that uh, why that conservative bent? I mean, you... you... You could have gone a lot of different directions. Look, mm-hmm. a lot of young people go the democratic way. They they have a little bit more of a liberal voice and a and approach. You've got a you've got a degree of at least as best I can tell um, that isn't so. Um, it's more libertarian, I think, than than uh, some other people. But what 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 informed that? Like where where did that come from in growing up? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of it was starting to stumble upon political discourse. So my first introduction to it was the 1996 presidential election, and it was uh, Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. And we had uh, an assignment in our sixth grade class to join a fake or a virtual campaign for one of these guys, or Perot, I guess. And you could choose which one you wanted to, quote unquote, work for in this social studies project. And a local newspaper in New Jersey had, you know, Candidates on the issues, and it was this uh, chart, basically, Clinton and Dole, and it had maybe whatever, a a dozen issues listed, and then a brief summary of where they each stood. And I went through and I just circled which explanation I agreed with more, then I tallied them up, and it was something like like 9 to 3 for Bob Dole. (laughs) So I was like, okay, that's interesting. And uh, I stumbled across conservative talk radio um, a few years after that. 
I was trying to tune into a Yankees game on the radio, and I, I was confused. I thought it was a day game. It was a night game. And on during the day was this voice who eventually became very familiar, Sean Hannity. So I started listening to Hannity. I'm like, wait, this guy, this guy's conservative. He's Republican. This is really interesting. It's not really how the media usually is. So I started listening to Sean and talk radio. Um, and I think that was the those were the first embers of real interest. And then things got very serious and very personal uh, on 9-11. Growing up in that area, I was a junior in high school. Our town lost a dozen people. Our next door neighbor was in one of the towers. She got out, mm -hmm. thank God. Uh, my dad worked in lower Manhattan. We couldn't contact him for a few hours. You know, that was a day that within a few months I realized, oh wow, all this political stuff that I follow almost like it's a sport where you root for a team or whatever, it actually matters a lot. The leadership, who's in charge, what the policies are, this really matters a lot. So that took, I think, a budding interest into something uh, more significant. And I never really looked back in terms of the, the level of interest. What did shift a little bit was I, I kind of, you know, as a younger guy, memorized all the conservative positions, right? This is what we believe on all these things. I'd sort of memorize and learn and I would, you know, have debates with people who disagreed and that sort of thing. And when I got to college, really, it was when I started getting uh, tested and challenged in a consistent way by really smart people who disagreed with me. And I wanted to be open-minded enough to recognize, oh, wait, maybe I'm not a full-blown conservative on every single issue. Maybe some of these arguments that I've been spouting, I don't fully understand or fully agree with, ultimately. Maybe they're a little bit weaker than I thought. So I became, over the course of maybe those four or five years, more heterodox, a little bit more left-leaning or libertarian on certain things, certain issues, got more conservative on other things. And I'd say to this day, I'm, I'm kind of a pragmatic, center-right conservative with a few heterodoxies. And, and I try to be intellectually honest, intellectually consistent um fair but i'm definitely on the right not on the left and you know i get grief for that all the time but it is what it is i you know i don't i don't back down i have no apologies for it yeah i i, I wish our country could have more of that that open dialogue and that discussion and still be able to break bread and go out to dinner and put your arms around it but boy it just seems like you stake a position or talk about politics and, and that causes problems. And then on the other end, I, I see that everything is politics. It's like, wait a sec, baseball doesn't need to be politics. Going to I the movies know. doesn't need to be politics. Everything doesn't need to be political. And I, I, I hope we find our way that in that in that regard. Yeah, and I, I, I hate the politicizing of everything. I resent yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the reason that, you know, some of the anthem kneeling and stuff bothered me. Not so much that I was, you know, screaming about, you know, anyone who kneels should lose their starting position or whatever. It was just like, I wish politics were not infecting this part of our society where we can usually just come together and unite and root for teams and, and we can leave some of that other baggage at the door, like at the gate to the stadium. We all just come in and we're fans of, of whatever team it is. And for those three hours, we can just enjoy and root and, and have something in common. And I resent it when people try to take it away from us and, and make it like a virtue, their own virtue. And it's privilege for us uh, to want to have just a space where it's apolitical. I think that that's I think that that's nonsense. And it, like the all-star game thing with baseball really annoyed me this year, which is why I was uh, rooting pretty hard for the Atlanta Braves just to stick it uh, to the hypocrites in Major League Baseball and the commissioner in particular. And they did, of course. The one thing I will say, Jason, about being able to put some stuff aside, the counterpoint is I, I think in real life, a lot of people still can and do 
do that on a regular basis. So just uh, recently, my cousin got married. So this is my dad's sister's daughter, Emma. She married uh, her husband, Max. And my father's side of the family, excluding my dad, but my dad's parents and his siblings and that whole side of the family is very, very liberal. I mean, my grandfather donated to every Democrat you could think of, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, all of them. Um, And I obviously (laughs) went a very different direction. But, you know, Emma's family and that side of the family, very, very liberal. Her now husband, that family is more Republican and conservative. And we were just at this beautiful wedding with, I would say, close to probably in the ballpark of a 50-50 ideological split, if I had to guess. Right. And it was occasionally joked about or referenced in, you know, the toasts and the speeches and that that kind of thing. But ultimately, it didn't matter. And everyone there had a spectacular time. It was a beautiful fall day. The venue was great. These two people, you know, are starting their life together. They love each other. They're a wonderful, open-minded young couple. And we all knew, you know, there were huge disagreements. We had just had a big election in Virginia. There was all sorts of disagreements. And it just, it didn't matter because other things mattered more. And it was just, it was just a great, great experience. And I think that that is still the norm in a lot of America, even though there are people who seem to be dedicated to making it not the norm and trying to force us into politics all the time. And I think a lot of people don't want anything to do with that. And and in their real lives, in their friendships and families, they actually reject it. Yeah. Well, I I think that's the case. I think it gets to be exhausting sometimes. Yes. Every single thing has to be political. But I hope that's that. I mean, I hope that that glimpse into that is more prevalent than sometimes I feel like I sometimes I feel so immersed in, in politics. Maybe it's, you know, like Pigpen on, on, on Snoopy, you know, <laughs> this cloud just follows me around and I sometimes can't get away from that cloud. It's just, well, a I mean, we also storm. work like this is the life that we've chosen too, right? You were, you right. ran for Congress, you work at Fox news. I'm in the political media. Like yeah, I kind of did ask for it. Didn't I? Yeah, we did. We did. Sometimes <laughs> I regret it, but usually not. Usually not. All right, guy. I've got to ask you some rapid questions. Okay. These are things I, I don't care how many foreign countries you've been visited or whatever. You, you can't properly prepare for this, but Uh-oh. we'll give it a go. All right. All right. First concert you attended. Billy Joel and Elton John, Philadelphia, four hours. Unbelievable. Billy Joel is my favorite. That 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 was that that's impressive. You know, is he still doing those monthly oh, yeah. concerts at Madison Square Garden? Yeah, they just started back up again. I've never seen him at the Garden. I've seen him five times. Never at the Garden, but I, I really I have resolved to. Yeah, you, you've got to, Jason. You've got to see Billy Joel. It is. I, he I puts on a great once. show. You know, in my previous life. My previous life here, to truth to be told, I was kind of, for lack of a better word, the wrangler for a corporation that it was. Uh, we had a working relationship with Christy Brinkley and oh, um, his ex-wife. Yours truly, you know, went ahead and volunteered to uh, to go ahead and you know be the liaison between her and the company <laughs> I was working for. So I spent I'm a shocked. lot of time with Christy Brinkley, and uh, there was one occasion where I actually met Billy Joel, and I thought, I wish I could chat with you, but it's really. I'm kind of over here with Christy Brinkley, so probably not. But um, it was really pretty cool. But he is such an entertainer, and I'd love to. That's something I really want to do in New York City. All right. um, What was your high school mascot? The Maroons. Yeah, so what is a maroon? I mean, I, I mean, like, what is the actual mascot? It is a good. Uh, we didn't have an actual mascot. Uh, we were maroon and white. Ridgewood, let's fight. Those were our colors. I did ask about this because it's an odd. It's an odd mascot and or an odd nickname. And our dean of students told me a maroon is an escaped slave 
Ridgewood, my hometown in New Jersey, apparently was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Wow. Isn't that cool? All right, now that's that's more legit than being like a Viking that never set foot in some place in New Jersey or something. That's right, that, or landlocked that's got state. some real history to it. Yeah. All right, that that sounds pretty cool. Do you ever have any pets growing up? Uh, we, I mean, they would give us like turtles and that kind of thing to prove that we could be turtles yeah that we could be you know responsible and of course you know a turtle's not going to get you out of bed in the morning i wanted a dog we all well, you don't have dogs. to take it out on a snowy day to go you know true do but it also business. does nothing it just sits in this little tank and does nothing so i mean with all due respect uh to the turtles but we wanted a dog and finally we got a dog again it was towards the end of my time at home so I begged for a dog my whole life, and then what, junior or senior year of high school, you know, Christmas, oh, we're getting a dog finally. Well, that's great. Thanks thanks for jumping on this as soon as I'm about to leave leave town. Uh, but yes, LB, Elberon, a, a gold, soft-haired Wheaton Terrier, great, great dog. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. I do have a dog at home, uh, a Bedlington Terrier named Roy, and he's the greatest. Roy. Roy's Roy. not yep. a common name for a dog, but Roy, that's good. Well, it's short for Corduroy. His name is Corduroy, but we call him Roy. <laughs> All right, that is cute. You know, my family, they, they always want to have just a common name for a dog, which is, is pretty funny. And Anyway, um, all right, so uh, life's most embarrassing moment for Guy Benson. Mm, trying to think. One that comes to mind was, I mentioned much earlier in the interview that I was a Cub Scout, a U.S. Boy yes, Scout, but I was in Hong Kong, right? So we went on a, we went on a hike in Hong Kong, and uh, there was this, uh, there was like a little hill, and we were sliding down the hill because we thought it was cool, like, like a slide, and I did not realize that in this process of sliding down the hill, I had just worn a few <laughs> holes into the back of my pants. I did not know that until... I was walking ahead on the hike and people started making fun of me. And I remember they were saying, I see London, I see France, I see guys underpants. And my, my I believe, ducktails underwear was showing through my shorts. And I was so embarrassed. And I remember going to the back of the line of the hike because I didn't want anyone behind me because I was so embarrassed that people could see my underwear. These are, these are little kid problems. Little kid problems, but you still... Uh, evidently wake up at night that worried about them too I, I i i understand all right so if you could meet one person dead or alive have them over for dinner who would that person be i think it'd be pretty hard to answer anything other than jesus christ that would be fun that would be legitimate that would yeah. be a conversation you wouldn't want to end i totally get it right good answer. I, I think that that's probably my answer there's there's a few others that i think would be fascinating but i don't know if they can compete uh you know, i did ask brett bear i think brett bear said look i you know I, mine's gonna be a party i'm not gonna have just one person and then he just <laughs> rattled off a whole bunch of well that's cheating <laughs> that's not allowed I mean, maybe maybe for the anchor of special report, you have your own special set of rules, special report, special rules. But here at the Guy Benson show, we answer the question. <laughs> well, tell Brett you said that. <laughs> Good. I think he'll appreciate it. Yeah, Although, I think he he'd will. probably have everyone from his books and he'd plug all of his books. <laughs> well, he did talk about that and he there did plug go. all See, of his no, books. Smart. Always be closing. Brett knows what he he's always, doing. <laughs> he was deaf. You know, Ulysses S. Grant is not usually somebody that would be on <laughs> right. that list, but it was on Brett's list. So. Yeah. Uh, unique talent that nobody knows about. Hmm. What can you do that most people, they have no idea that you can do that? I would say, now this is this is a tough one. Um, I think usually people are sort of taken aback just by some of my life story and growing up 
and that sort of thing. But I, I, that's not really a talent. I did win the geography B in fifth grade. It's something I'm very proud of. So I know more than the average person about international geography. Um, I'm like conversational. At that grade grade level, that's pretty impressive. Now you were traveling, but still. That's true. So my winning answer was Indonesia. I'm like basically conversational-ish in Spanish. I remember one of my friends had no idea and we were were somewhere where Spanish needed to be spoken and I just did it. And they were like, whoa, what? But again, I don't think that's terribly unusual. I wish I had some sort of like crazy party trick talent just to blow people away. I don't. I kind of have an okay Trump impression. That's not really that good. Do you, do you care to do it? Um, no, I mean, many people are saying it's uh, <laughs> tremendous. It's so good. It's, it's just uh, many people are saying impeccable, actually. It's so true. Um, and that you do the hand gestures with it. It, it helps more. It's better in person because of the gestures. Um, so I, I'd say my Trump impression is probably like a, a six or seven out of ten. Not a 10 out of 10, but some people think they can do it. It's uh, not great. I'm still working on my Biden, uh, which involves a lot of sort of outbursts and then whispering uh, and then nodding off. I'm working on a little drooling maybe in between. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you said that's coming next. So um, (laughs) what? uh, Okay, what's that other thing for Guy Benson? Here's what I mean by the other thing. If you want to get away from it all, just clear your head. Like me, I like to go out and do wildlife photography. I go out and do that. Guess what? I don't think about the world, the world's problems and work and all that. I don't even think about things for for hours on end. But if you want to kind of get out, get away from it all, what would you do? Probably watch sports. I'm a huge sports fan. That's a big, big deal. Attending sporting events, big deal. Uh, Big into food and wine. So like dining out, trying new restaurants. And then definitely international travel, which I try to do as often as I can, uh, you know, within reason. And I just love that exploring different cultures, different foods and, oh, yeah. and getting, you know, bringing you bringing my husband along and, and sometimes, you know, groups of friends that that does it. And I also this is the other thing when I'm done with work or like I'm on vacation or it's the holidays. My in-laws are huge Fox viewers, huge. They have often various Fox News networks on different TVs all at the same time, all over their house. Right. And if I go there for you know after Christmas or something, I with all love and respect for all of our colleagues, and I think we do a great job here. When there's big news, I turn it on. But if I'm trying to unplug from any of this stuff, I just I can't have. I can't have it on in the background. Although what I hate even more is at the airports where they're like forcing you into CNN. Oh, Not I only know. on the screen, but they pipe nuts. it in the, like that you have to listen to it. I remember That's... I was tr- trying to go on vacation once, trying to unplug, and there was some big political controversy happening. I was like, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to get stressed out about it. I don't want to get angry about it. And they had like Brian Stelter's voice screaming at me at the airport. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. I know you can't president. sit anywhere. That's that's where headphones come in really. Uh-huh. really yes, those earbuds. Get me some earbuds. Exactly. Noise canceling, please. <laughs> All right, two last questions. You don't blow this one. Pineapple on pizza? Yes no. or no? Oh, thank goodness. We knew you liked it. We liked you, guy, and that is the only acceptable answer. The judges thank you. really do appreciate no, the no my answer. My producer, producer Christine, who's from New Jersey and allegedly Italian. I can't be that self-respecting because she's a pineapple on pizza person, and I, it's just it's a hard no for yeah. me. That's good. It's this is a crystal clear choice. There's there you got to be definitive. So good for you for for staking your putting your stake in the ground and saying mm-hmm. no, that's just not going to mm-hmm. happen on my pizza. Agree with you. All right, last question. Best advice you ever got. 
I would say that was years ago, starting out my career, and it's it's trite and it's simple, but I think it's good, and I share it with younger audiences all the time. Work hard and be nice. And it's not original. I'm, it's not groundbreaking, but it's true. If you work hard and you're nice to the people around you and people that you work with, um, I think that gives you – it's the right thing, first of all. It also gives you an advantage because there are a lot of people who either work hard but aren't nice or they're very nice but they're not terribly you know, hard workers – uh, you can have a leg up on all of those folks through that combination, and uh, and that's what I try to do. Well, you know, I, I think you do an exceptional job at it. You're a great talent, and a, like I said, with great clarity, and I think that's right. People want to work with who they like, and you don't want to go out. You, there's always somebody at work somewhere. You're just like, oh, I don't want to deal with that person, and uh, and and pretty quickly over the course of well, over the course of time, people figure out. Yeah, that person knows what they're doing because they really do work hard at it. And then that garners respect. And with respect comes more opportunities and more respect. And so totally agree with you on that one. And and hey, congratulations on your career. I'm glad to work with you at, at, at Fox. And, Likewise. And uh, you're doing your stuff with Town Hall, too, as well, like you have oh, for yeah. years. And, um, busy. I'm, I'm busy. That's yeah, for sure. You're, that's good. That's good. And uh, the host of The Guy Benson Show. So uh, listen to that on Fox Radio. And uh, we'll see you on all kinds of things at Fox. And I hope our, our paths continue to cross. So Guy Benson, thanks for joining the Jason in the House podcast. Absolutely. I hear the ad for the Jason in the House podcast all the time on my radio show. So it's really cool to be here on the program with you. Thank you for thinking of me. Thanks for making this work. Hope people enjoyed it. And we'll have you back on the radio soon, Jason. Oh, very good. Thanks for taking the time. You bet. Can't thank Guy Benson enough. You know, they're good people in the world who uh, do a lot of good things and, and the ability to articulate and be able to put a cogent argument before people uh, is really quite a talent. And I'm glad we had a chance to chat with uh, with Guy Benson. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. So thanks for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. There's more podcasts over at foxnewspodcast.com. I love it if you'd rate it and subscribe to it. And we'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the House. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.